bullshit. Don't bullshit. Don't bullshit. 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 Shit. Fucking bullshit. Bullshit. Without our safe, familiar American bullshit. Land of the free, home of the brave, the American dream. All men are equal, justice is blind, the press is free. Your vote counts. Business is honest, the good guys win. The police are on your side. God is watching you. Your standard of living will never decline. And everything is going to be just fine. Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter 2020. My name is Cameron Riley. This is episode 62. I'm uh, without Ray today because I have a special guest back on the show, Alan McLeod from Glasgow. Those of you uh, who heard him last time will remember that uh, he's one of the most insightful media critics uh, writing today, in my opinion, and... um, Unfortunately, last time it was we were talking. We were talking before the UK general election, and um, you had your hopes up that Jeremy Corbyn could pull a rabbit out of his hat. Uh, sadly, that that wasn't the case. No, that's not happened. The Conservatives won a sweeping majority, and Boris Johnson is now in power. Um, I think Corbyn's main strategic mistake, I think, was probably doing a little bit of a flip-flop on Brexit, I think he should have taken a stronger position in the sense that he maybe should have said, well, we lost the vote, but we have to get on with it now. Because, of course, more people voted for Brexit in the UK than um, than any political party in its history. And I think uh, Corbyn's mistake was to placate the ultra-remainers in, her, in his party that said, you know, we have to stop Brexit at any cost, even if that means ignoring the will of the people. Although, wasn't there an argument to say that the, the, the vote that was taken on Brexit was very flawed? People didn't really understand what the arguments were. I'm not sure if that holds any water because... I guess, a, a vote's a vote at the end of the day. But I, I understood that there was some element of the fact that after the Brexit vote, quite a lot of people who voted to leave uh, suddenly said, hold on a second, uh, what's going on? Yeah, that's right. I think one of the most Googled search terms the next day in the UK was, what is the EU? Which is quite <laughs> worrying that that happened afterwards, not before. And certainly the vote was flawed in the sense that lots of parties were just lying through their teeth, uh, talking about how certain things would be so much better or worse after after leaving the EU. But I think ultimately it was probably no more flawed than any other election or uh, referendum that we've had in the UK. I heard that one of the most Googled terms afterwards was, what the fuck did I just do? Uh, <laughs> and, and is it true that if Superman flies backwards around the Earth, we can turn time back? Um, well, I wanted to get you on, Alan, uh, because in the last couple of weeks, I mean, there's there's <laughs> there's never there's never a surfeit of things to talk to you about, and particularly in terms of the narratives that are going on in the media, particularly with regards to geopolitics and the United States's uh, role in some of the more tense regions of the world. Um, and you did some great posting a couple of weeks ago regarding the situation in Venezuela with uh, the the Uster, I think that's a word or is 
Better place in Ireland. It's Ulster. The Ulster of uh, Juan Guaido from his position as the opposition leader in Venezuela. Or, or has he been ousted? Um, I'm, I'm a little bit confused by the reporting out of there. Can you, can you give us your take on what's, what happened in Venezuela in the last couple of weeks? Well, I mean, you're right to be confused because it is a very tricky situation to get your head around. I mean, um, the opposition uh, coalition decided to vote for someone else to be their leader after Juan Guaido's time was up. They didn't want him to uh, return after all of his uh, crazy escapades. And so uh, they voted for someone else. But the United States certainly did not like that and uh, has decided to put sanctions on the new opposition leader. So they're continuing to support Guaido as uh, as the leader, even though he was uh, voted out. Guaido had this uh, amazing sort of, uh, uh, I wouldn't say press conference, but maybe a bit of a publicity stunt where he attempted to scale the, uh, the railings of the of the opposition parliament building, which is controlled by uh, yeah by the local opposition, and he was uh, you know pulled down from the uh, from the battlements, if you will. So uh, I'm not surprised people are finding it a bit head scratching looking at what's going on because frankly, Venezuelan politics are some of the craziest in anywhere in the world. And that's not a new thing on on our. Venezuela series uh, we've done on this show. We, we've gone back over their uh, political history over the last century. And on average, they've had a coup every couple of years uh, with uh, presidents going into self-imposed exile or, or forced exile, people being uh, arrested and executed and uh, the CIA getting involved from the 60s onwards in pushing through coups and involvement in Operation Condor. And it's, it's, they have a very messy and bloody history. I suspect a lot of people uh, reading the Washington Post these days will, will hear stories about uh, Maduro and uh, Venezuela and think, well, this is, uh, this is very unusual or strange, but it's not. It's like Bolivia. They've got a very turbulent, like many countries in Latin America, a very turbulent political history. Right, exactly. They say that, you know, so far from God and so close to the United States, they're in the worst position, aren't they? Where, where's the God bit? Where is that the uh, uh, Rome? That I suppose so, yeah. Just, sure is, yeah. Yeah, in another world. Yeah, so uh, some of the stories I read about this uh, Guaido situation in the last week was that I read one story that said... He had, there was no need for him to try and scale the fence. He could have walked in through the front door, but he did it purely as a photo op. I don't know if there's uh, how much veracity there is to that story. Do you have any inkling? Well, he'd already been in the, uh, the parliament building that day. So, in fact, as far as I'm concerned, yes, it was a bit of a, a photo op. Guaido is uh, one for the selfie, and he's certainly one to publicize himself to the international community, perhaps more to, than the Venezuelan population itself. So, yeah, I think that's uh, completely correct that he was in, uh, there was no need for him to, to try to scale the walls. It was just a, 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 an opportunity to make it look like he was being oppressed. 
Right, exactly. So the fact that he is no longer officially the opposition leader of Venezuela and and yet the United States continues to treat him as if he is the opposition leader. In fact, they don't even they treat him as the interim president still, I think, or the the president or what, what what's the official title from the United States's perspective? The uh the, the Oh, just yes, the president. That's just right. The president. Yeah. What 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 can we deduce from that? The fact that um, the country has removed this guy from office, and yet the United States are ignoring that. Um, the United States often likes to claim that it's a big fan of democracy. I guess they're just saying that well, that's that's not real democracy. Or how how will we know when there's real democracy when they tell us it's okay? Well, yes, exactly. I mean, I think Guaido's constituency has been shrinking for quite some time to the point where I think he sees his real constituency as being in Washington because that's where the money is coming from. Uh, this is being recorded, so I might better not say anything particularly libelous, but there are certainly many allegations about extreme embezzlement coming from coming from uh, his side. There are there are multiple cases which total up to nearly a hundred million dollars of uh, money that seems to have gone missing that's u.s taxpayer money by the way if any of your listeners are in the united states that has been going to guaido and his party to try to keep him uh, keep him sustainable keep him popular in polls make him able to uh you know run for president politically uh, one thing that really does strike me as strange is that you've got this anti-president running around Venezuela saying the country is a dictatorship and everybody's oppressed, but he seems to have complete impunity to do what he wants. Meanwhile, the elected president in Bolivia, Evo Morales, has been kicked out of his country and has fled and has received asylum in Argentina, but that, according to our media, is a perfect democracy now, or at least an interim democracy. Well, this is, you know, it's one of the problems. To be fair, one of the problems with... uh latin american countries is both sides are always claiming the other side's corrupt and embezzling money that's just that's just and they're both usually correct on that (laughs) yes that's usually right yeah like uh that's you know one of the things that you know uh glenn greenwald and his reporting with the intercept uh has, has made clear in brazil with operation car wash uh, Lula was uh, Lula and his administration and his successor administration were accused of being uh, corrupt and and, on, and taking bribes and all this kind of stuff. Uh, people went to jail, including Lula. Uh, the new the new administration comes in, and now the allegations are running around that the not only is the new administration corrupt and taking bribes, but the judge. That sentence that 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 uh, heard the Lula corruption trials was corrupt, and uh, I think took a position of minister of justice or something in the uh, Bolsonaro government. I mean, it, it's uh, sitting on the sidelines. We have to say, look, who knows? Who knows what the truth is, really? It is amazing, you know, sitting here in Europe thinking our politics is a bit crazy and then just reading and researching about Latin America and you realise that actually you're in something of a a sort of haven of stability in comparison, frankly. That Sergio Moro case in Brazil, you've summed it up really well. Um, It is extraordinary that the judge presiding over the impeachment and jailing of a president was actually in communication with the 
with uh, the accusatory team and was uh, helping the prosecutors uh, prosecute uh, uh, Dilma uh, Rousseff and Lula da Silva. And now we've got a case, as you said, he's now uh, the Minister of Justice in the new government and nobody seems to want to do anything because, of course, ultimately these things are ruled by force, aren't they? And Bolsonaro seems to have uh, the power on his side right now. Yeah. So getting back to Venezuela then, um, the state of affairs is, despite America's uh, best attempts over the course of the last year, Nicolas Maduro, uh, still the president, Guaido seems to have been removed by the people through democratic means from his position as leader of the opposition and acting president of Venezuela in the eyes of the United States and many other foreign countries as well, including, I think, uh, yours and, and mine. Um, but, the, you know, the, the, the narrative is that, uh, well, yes, but that wasn't a real democratic vote, so uh, we're just going to ignore it for the time being. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I suppose the sanctions in Venezuela from the United States are still very punishing. Uh, mm. Maduro is still reasonably unpopular, as is, as is his government. But the problem is, is that just because a government's unpopular doesn't mean it's completely illegitimate. And it seems that the people of Venezuela would rather have uh, Maduro warts and all than this sort of magical Washington boy uh, in charge. Um, yeah, I mean, Guaido was actually removed by his colleagues in the parliament, so his peers rather than the people. So you'd think that in the eyes of the United States, who've been funding and supporting the opposition for over 20 years now, that that would make uh, the vote legitimate. But it seems that Mike Pence and Donald Trump still have a bit of faith in Guaido and want him to continue as, uh, as the anti-president. I would say that it, it sounds from uh, listening to people in Venezuela that the economic situation has improved over the last year to the point where it's not so much of a crisis anymore, just a sort of long-term sapping of strength, really, from the economy. Um, so right now, uh, the situation in, in Venezuela is still stuffed up, but um, looking uh, more interesting and perhaps more hopeful than uh, it was a year ago. And as, you know, I'm, I'm fond of pointing out to folks, this whole issue of unilateral sanctions that the United States is fond of using is illegal under international law. I think we spoke about this last time. It is, it's, it's an act of warfare. Uh, and and they're, they're setting out to cripple an economy with all of the effects of that, which tends to have uh, effects on the, you know, the state of healthcare, the state of emergency services, um, and, of, and, of course, the ability for people to be able to make, get, maintain employment, keep businesses open, uh, people to have enough food to survive, all of those sorts of things. It's deliberately designed to crush and cripple an economy so people will rise up and overthrow their administration that uh, the U.S. wants to get rid of. And, of course, when people do rise up and complain, the U.S. goes, look, they're uh, complaining. Well, yeah, no, no kidding. They're complaining. <laughs> You've ruined their fucking lives. Yes, they're upset about it, uh, but uh, the the that doesn't really tend to get a lot of play in uh, Western media. The uh, background 
of the uh, the economic crisis. And again, we've seen this in Bolivia. Same same sort of thing happened. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a great point you make. Uh, sanctions, when they're talked about, perhaps in the press or in the public sphere, it sounds very legalese, like it's a, a response to something. But you're right in saying it is absolutely economic warfare. I mean, it's illegal under Article 2 of the UN Charter, which is supposed to be the bedrock of international law. The sanctions are on Venezuela, anyway, are illegal under the Organization of American States law as well. And they're even, uh, they even appear to be uh, illegal under US law as well. I mean, there was one United Nations uh, special rapporteur who visited Venezuela, an American actually, Alfred Desaias, and he compared the sanctions to a medieval siege and said that the Trump administration was guilty of crimes against humanity. And the sanctions have been condemned in the UN General Assembly. Uh, the United Nations urged all countries to break the sanctions and even started talking about uh, the reparations the United States should pay to Venezuela. Almost none of that, what I've just said, has made it into any sort of mainstream source. So you'd have to really go finding, uh, looking for it yourself, either on quite obscure alternative media sites or really, you know, have to be doing some sort of PhD research project to actually know this stuff because nobody actually goes into United Nations documents and reads them for fun generally. We have to rely on big media to mediate this for us to present what they think is important. Mm. And, of, of course, they tend to either ignore a lot of this stuff or if they do cover it, it's uh, scant. It's buried. It's one line, two lines towards the bottom part of an article that they know most people aren't going to read. Most people will read the headline in the first one or two paragraphs and that's it. Um, so they, they bury it. And uh, why, why, why do you think they do that? Why do you think these, these sorts of details don't get coverage in the Western media? Well, sometimes it's a question of tone as well, isn't it? You know, they'll be very outraged if, you know, Russia or Iran or North Korea does something. But if, uh, you know, Europe or Australia or the United States does something quite similar, uh, it will be, you know, it will be covered very sort of matter of factly. I mean, I suppose the reason for <clears throat> why this is going on is really the function of the media in society, isn't it? I mean, we like to think of the media as these plucky little underdogs who are there to challenge power and, you know, stand up for the people with a pen and, uh, you know, tell us the truth. But in reality, what's happened in the last 50 years, say, over the media is that more and more big newspapers, big outlets are are really just cogs in enormous corporate machines, all of which have got their own interests all over the world. And generally, those interests are the status quo, aren't they? They are more profit for big corporations, no big changes in government, uh, free market economics, etc., globalization. They really don't want these things to be changed. And ultimately, if things are going to you know, hurt their worldview, they're probably not going to give them very much attention in the press, are they? Well, no, I, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It, it seems to me that if I was a, the CEO of a large media corporation, I was getting paid, I don't know, 
few million dollars a year plus uh, bonuses uh, and um, I had a couple of nice houses and drove nice cars and went on nice vacations, I wouldn't have a great incentive to change things. Uh, I'd be pretty happy with the way things are. Why would I want to? Why would I want to rock the boat? So I, I think you're right that the people who run these media companies have no real desire to change things. So they uh, they play a very delicate <clears throat> balancing act of of appearing to be covering the news but doing it in a way that isn't going to disturb the status quo too much. Yeah, exactly. I mean. Big J journalists nowadays, the ones who are writing for big uh, companies like the New York Times or Washington Post or CNN or ABC or whatever, um, yeah, they tend to come from quite a narrow economic background. They tend to come from the the top of the socioeconomic order. They've been they've studied at you know Oxford University or Harvard or Yale or Columbia Journalism School, where they've been taught how to do journalism properly. And really, that has quite negative consequences for the range of opinions we've got in our media, you know. Uh, there aren't too many people from modest economic backgrounds in journalism nowadays for, for one reason, because you, it's generally seen as a, as a prerequisite that you've got these expensive degrees. But also, you often have to do internships to get your foot in the door nowadays, which usually means traveling to somewhere like London or New York and living there without any sort of income for six months to a year. Mm -hmm. And that's really only open to people who've got millionaire parents. Mm -hmm. And so what we see is journalism is increasingly becoming a profession of the elite where, you know, in the 20th century, that really wasn't the case. Journalism, generally, those people had worked their way up from printmaking or, you know, literally being on the, the floor, you know, casting the, uh, <clears throat> the ink and stuff to print the newspapers, that's gone nowadays. Journalism is very much a white-collar job. Although I, I did uh, report on an article recently. I saw one study done uh, in terms of the political leanings of American journalists that seemed to indicate that over the last 50 years, uh, American journalists have moved extremely to the left compared to where they were, I think, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, they they seem to be a lot more left-leaning in terms of how they self-report their own political leanings. And the article that I, uh, where I read about this study was in a, a right-leaning uh, publication trying to make the case for the liberal media, as usual. But I pointed out to our listeners that when you go and look at the media bias studies, when you actually look at the analysis on the uh, newspapers and television stations themselves and their news coverage, it, it's fairly balanced, um, at least in the US. You know, there seems to be a fairly even balance of bias in terms of left and right. But then I went back to the thing I think you and I talked about the last time you were on this show was the Overton window. I think when we talk about balance in the media in terms of the existing media landscape, it's balance in context of the Overton window. So even the uh, uh, media entities that are supposedly on the left uh, aren't, 
talking openly about, uh, well, you know, maybe we should have a serious crack at socialism in this country. They're still probably centre-right politically, yet in terms of the Overton window spectrum, they they appear on the left, even though they may not be quote-unquote left. What do you think? Yeah, it's, to- it's totally true that the majority of journalists, when polled, say in the United States, for instance, would uh, self-report as voting Democrats rather than Republican. And that is interesting, it is worth knowing, but honestly, I don't think it tells you very much about the output of the media, you know? If we compare that to another uh, business, let's say a big coal mine, let's say a big Adani coal mine, if we find out that the majority of the workers support, you know, are far leftist supporting the, some socialist party, does that mean the coal mine or Adani, you know, does that mean Adani is suddenly a, a left-wing organization? <laughs> it's not the case, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, Ford or something, you know, if uh, the majority of the workers on the shop floor were uh, voting left-wing, does that mean Ford suddenly becomes a, a, a revolutionary socialist organization? Not so much. Mm. We have to really look at the output, as you were saying, and the output clearly shows that uh, that uh, big organizations are biased in favor of the status quo, which is, you know, support for huge inequality, support for billionaires, support for financial corporations running the world, support for enormous transnational globalized companies, that sort of thing, yeah. Mm. Well, on top of Venezuela, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was the situation that's been playing out in Iran. Fortunately, it seems to have been um, quietening down in the last couple of days. Um, And you you wrote a good article last week that summed it up. And I want to talk to you about your take on the media coverage. And one of the things when um, Trump first assassinated Soleimani... One of the things um, I predicted on our uh, on our show was that, you know, based on past history of of the U.S. getting involved in these sort of conflicts, um, we we tend to see a very biased coverage of these things uh, in the media, and and the same sorts of the, the there's a narrative that evolves that is fairly common across publications and even coming out of politicians on the left and the right. Um, I got quite um, animated when people, uh, like the day after the assassination, people like even Elizabeth Warren uh, would refer to Soleimani as a murderer who killed hundreds of Americans. And I was like, well, (laughs) A, where's the evidence that he was responsible for doing that? B, if you are pointing to American troops in Iraq, there are American troops that are in Iraq illegally because you illegally invaded that country uh, and then built bases <laughs> there and then just stuck around for the last 18 years. So, And there was, and, and, and none of the narrative, either in the media or in Elizabeth Warren's tweets, reflected that. The, 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 uh, the, the history between the U.S. and Iraq and the U.S. and Iran. Anyway... I wanted to get your take on this because you're smarter than I am and, and you're less uh, prone to uh, ranting, I think, than I am. Give me give me your take on what you've seen in terms of the media coverage of the US-Iran situation in the last couple of weeks. How's it, how's it been playing out to your eyes? Yeah, sure. I mean, I suppose on the subject of Soleimani, there's been pretty much near unanimous condemnation of Soleimani as 
an evil, a blood-soaked terrorist who had it coming, according to the New York Times, or uh, you know, as bad as Osama bin Laden or Adolf Hitler, according to the Washington Post. And as you said, so many articles, so many news uh, broadcasts have been saying that Soleimani is a, a killer who killed hundreds of Americans. But yes, you have to look at who are these Americans? American civilians? No, it's actually, they're talking about American troops in Iraq. And as you said, you have to look at the context of why they're in Iraq and what are they doing there and the legality of it. So a, a different way of framing that might be Soleimani provided effective resistance to an occupying force, which sounds a lot different to killing Americans. Um, we've seen Mike Pence and other government officials try to link Soleimani with 9-11. Uh, on Twitter, the hashtag Iranians detest Soleimani trended for many days, but not in the Middle East. It was actually trending in the United States, which makes me wonder who are these Iranians who detest Soleimani? Um, I'm certainly no fan of uh, big military figures very often. I think uh, very often these sorts of people who make their way up to the top of the military are perhaps psychopaths. I think uh, your new book on the subject would uh, certainly be illuminating on that fact. Thank you for but that. Thank I, you this... for that subtle and sneaky plug there, Alan. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been, uh, yeah, I've been reading it. Um, uh, yeah. So I suppose uh, I'm no lover of generals, and I would be very mistrustful. But there doesn't really seem to be any real evidence that Soleimani is particularly worse than any other Middle Eastern general around. In fact, there was a poll done just a few months ago by the University of Maryland uh, in Iran, which found that Soleimani was the most popular living figure in the country, with four out of five Iranians having a positive view of him, and three out of five having an extremely positive view of him. So this, uh, this killing has actually backfired if the Trump administration was thinking that this would uh, see, uh, spur people on to overthrow their government which is, of course, what the Americans have been doing in Iran for more than 50 years. Um, generally, news reporting uh, or in uh, Western public life, we've got something of a short memory of Iran, and that memory tends to start with the Iranian Revolution of 1979, which brought about something of an Islamic uh, revolution. Uh, but Iranians tend to date their own history with the West to 1953, which was when they had a democratically elected liberal president, a sort of a rather secular, progressive guy, Mohammad Mossadegh, not particularly left or right or anything. But his main argument was that the Iranian oil should be used to fund Iranian schools, Iranian roads, Iranian hospitals, that sort of thing. But uh, the Anglo-American oil company was certainly not in favor of this. Uh, it's now known as BP, British Petro uh, Petroleum. Uh, and they organized a coup with the help of the CIA, uh, Kermit Roosevelt, uh, a relation to Teddy and Franklin Roosevelt, went to Iran and uh, paid demonstrators to do, go out onto the streets to cause a ruckus and slowly uh, used uh, the, the civic disc discord and uh, distrust to overthrow the president in 1953. And that brought about the return of the Shah, the, uh, the king of Iran, who ruled the country with an iron fist. I mean, uh, listening to the sorts of human rights violations that went on in that country, it sounds like it was 
uh, like a mid he was like a Middle Eastern Stalin and hated by everyone. And he was finally kicked out on this mass protest in the late 70s from students, from uh, from all sorts of professions, from the army, from uh, from uh, religious institutions. And it was ultimately the uh, the, the mosques that uh, provided the leadership for that revolution. And that's why we have the uh, theocratic uh, uh, system that we have in Iran right now. And so there's a lot of very important uh, uh, background knowledge that a lot of people don't have on Iran, which is not given to you in media reports. And that would suddenly start to make people understand the situation a lot better, I feel. Yeah. And again, we, we have to ask the question, well, why isn't this background information provided? Uh, I mean, I, I think the media would tend to argue, well, we, we have a limited amount of space. Uh, they, they used to get away with that when it was inches in papers. When it's when it's online, that's not really an excuse anymore. You could say, by the way, uh, the US overthrew the president. Uh, go, go read this uh, to give this some context. Yeah, I, I have to keep pointing this out to people when I get involved in Facebook discussions. Uh, you have the overthrow of Mossadegh in '53, and by the way, Churchill uh, was involved in that as well. He was he was back as the PM of the UK at the time. He was involved in having him overthrown. And for people who don't remember the story, uh, the the British had negotiated the oil rights in Iran back in the early part of the 20th century with one of the corrupt kings. And they, I think the Iranians were getting like a cent on the dollar or a couple of cents on the dollar for uh, the oil that was extracted. And Mossadegh, simply when he was made uh, president in, in, in late age, I think he was in his 70s at the time, he, um, he went to the British and said, look, we want to renegotiate uh, the rates, because I think the U.S. had just done a deal with the Saudis with oil, where the Saudis were getting to keep something like 50 cents in the dollar. And he said, well, that, you know, we'd be happy with that. Let's renegotiate. The British basically told him to go fuck himself. And after years of trying to negotiate better terms with the British, he decided to nationalize the oil interest because he just the British just weren't going to come to the table. They didn't care. Um, so after that, then, of course, the U.S. financed, uh, after the, the revolution, the U.S. financed and supported Saddam Hussein's war on Iran, sold him uh, 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 biological weapons, chemical weapons, which he happily used in Iran, um, whilst at the same time the U.S. were illegally and secretly selling weapons to Iran as part of the Iran-Contra deal. That went on for eight years. Millions of people died. When that failed to bring about regime change in Iran, and in fact changed to move the border one iota, the US then implemented illegal and punishing sanctions on Iran, um, which have lasted for decades, eased off a little bit under the Obama administration with the nuclear deal and then brought back with a force um, under Trump. And so the, it's very hard to see uh, how the U.S. come out of the whole U.S.-Iran uh, uh, situation in the last 70 years as anything other than uh, brutal bullies. And yet none of that get, comes across in any... <laughs> but Soleimani gets called a, a terrorist and a murderer... The U.S.'s part in the whole thing, people just tend to play off. Oh, well, that was 
that's old history. That uh, that doesn't matter. Ignore all of that. Nothing can be done about it now. Let's worry about what happened yesterday, not what's happened over the last 70 years. Drives me nuts. And that's why we get the, the question that George W. Bush asked. Do you remember? He said, why do they hate us? They hate and, us uh, for our he... freedoms, Alan. <laughs> And Not- in fact, it seems they they hate us, which you know even that might be a bit uh, a bit tricky because in fact when you poll Middle Easterners, they tend to really find the they tend to fear the U.S. government, but very much like Western people. Yes. So actually, when they say they hate us, that even that is a bit of a, a tricky one. It's a bit. It's the same when it comes to so many countries, isn't it? In the global mm-hmm. south, you know, mm-hmm. there was one report I was reading about North Korea, which casually mentioned at the very end, it said, oh, by the way, in the 1950s, US bombing killed around 20 to 25% of the entire Korean race. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of the article. Mm-hmm. You think, sorry, what? Mm-hmm. How many millions was that that died in, uh, in the bombings there? Mm-hmm. You'd think that that might, you know, perhaps uh, cast a bit of a, a new light on why the Koreans are so mistrustful of, uh, of uh, Western governments. Mm. Yeah, and then, you know, when you point out these things, I don't know if you get this, but I get it all the time. People say, oh, you just hate America. You're an American hater. I go, I'm, I'm, I'm married to a fucking American. My kid's an American. My co-host on this podcast and all my other podcasts is American. Like, I have tons of American friends. No, I don't hate America. I'm just telling the truth about the the history of and, and the present situation with the American elite the establishment uh which as far as i can tell is just uh, an imperial power like many other imperial powers before it trying to uh dominate as much of the global economy as it possibly can in the window of opportunity that's been presented to it and it can't tell the truth about that because uh, it wouldn't look too cool. So they make up lies about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Like the overthrow of Mossadegh. The, the United States lied about that, I think, until the 90s. I think it was in the, under the Clintons when uh, they finally admitted, oh, yeah, we did do that. People who were saying the US over the CIA overthrew Mossadegh for the previous 40 years have been uh, labelled as crazy conspiracy theorists. But I think it was only under Clinton when they finally admitted that, uh, yeah, yeah, we did do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, or you get called an apologist for Iran or Cuba or Venezuela or whatever country you're talking about. Or perhaps you might be called, you might be told that you're repeating Kremlin talking points. Yes. you know, uh, if that's the if that's the case, it basically shuts down any sort of argument. You can't have any sort of criticism of the state, of the government, of big companies, because you know somebody on RT may have said the the same thing at some point, and it's a it's a very good way of shutting down any sort of debates. But yeah, ultimately, I don't really feel loyal to any country. I think we should be loyal to our planet, not not our country, really. I agree. Good friend of mine here, uh, Dr. Peter Elliard. He's written a series of books over the years where he refers to himself as a planetist. He, uh, his allegiance is to the planet, the people and the, of the planet and the planet. And he's not a nationalist, he's a planetist. And I, I agree, it's how I feel as well. Sure, I mean, ultimately, we've probably got more in common with ordinary Iranian people than we do with our governments and likewise, ordinary Iranian people probably have more in common with us than they do with their government. 
and that's ultimately something that a lot of powerful people would probably not want people knowing and certainly not acting on. Mm. Getting back to this, this, these claims about Soleimani, he's a murderer, uh, and yet how many civilians has the US killed with drone strikes in the last couple of years? Uh, the numbers I've seen suggest it's in the thousands in places like Pakistan and Yemen and Afghanistan. Um, but you don't see Elizabeth Warren or, or the media calling out presidents or Pentagon generals or secretaries of defense as being murderers. It's okay when Americans kill civilians, but when an Iranian general may have been allegedly involved in killing American soldiers that are illegally occupying a uh, sovereign nation that they overthrew and uh, destabilized the government through a lot of people without trials into torture camps like Abu Ghraib and Camp Booker. <laughs> and then uh, subsequently, these people got out and, and formed ISIS, which then lay scourged to the region. Um, generals uh, fighting that uh, considered uh, called murderers by people like Elizabeth Warren, who's supposed to be one of the great progressive hopes of American politics. At least Bernie Sanders, I don't think, has got on board with the whole Soleimani as a murderer thing, at, the, at least as far as I'm aware. Yeah, there has been some pushback to this from the, uh, the left wing of the Democratic Party, but I think Warren is starting to uh, position herself more into the centre. She's uh, starting to walk back from her Medicare for all ideas. She was uh, she was very much uh, in support of uh, sanctions on Venezuela. She seems to support the coup in Bolivia as well. Mm. So Warren, I, I don't know where she, where she really stands, but it was really interesting to see that suddenly in the media there was outrage over foreign intervention in, in the Middle East and Iraq and Syria, but unfortunately it was only about Iranian intervention. It wasn't about United States intervention, was it? Because mm -hmm. it seems that uh, American troops, wherever they are in the world, are considered indigenous to the region because <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's the fact of the matter. The mentality is, is that we own the world, we control the world, and wherever we go is our own, uh, our own domain. And that's why you hear things like Iranian aggression when you actually look at the map and it's, you know, that Iran is circled by uh, US military bases and there are no Iranian military bases anywhere near the United States. Uh, I don't even think they've got any outside Iran and they haven't uh, attacked another country for hundreds of years. But, uh, you know, when Iran kills civilians, perhaps in Syria, that's, uh, that's murder. But when we do it, it's collateral damage. So there's interesting little linguistic tricks people can uh, can use to uh, soften the blow when talking about uh, serious subjects like killing. Yeah, even though Iran was invited into Syria by B Bashar al-Assad to support him in his civil war, we did 25 episodes on the Syrian civil war, so we went into an extreme detail and whatever you think of Bashar al-Assad and whatever you think of uh, his father and, and, and his government uh, in uh, Syria, Bottom line is, he's the president of the country. He invited the Iranians in to support him in the civil war. Um, he didn't invite the Americans in. The Americans just decided to go in uh, of their own accord. And the same is true with the, the surrounded by bases of Russia. Russia also, of course, uh, surrounded by NATO missiles pointing at them. But uh, 
Russia is considered the aggressor and not the United States. I wanted to point out one of the first um, uh, major Democrat voices that I saw picking up the uh, anti-Iranian narrative after the assassination of Soleimani was Robert Reich. I think he was uh, Clint's secretary uh, treasurer or something like that. He said uh, uh, on Facebook, friends, the real issue underlying Trump's assassination, and at least they're calling it an assassination. They did initially call it an assassination. I've now seen the media referring to it as a killing, which is how they normally refer to these things. But initially they were calling it an assassination, but then something changed in the last uh, few days. He says, Trump's assassination of uh, Qasem Soleimani is not whether the Iranian general posed a danger to the United States. He almost certainly did. What kind of fucking danger did this guy pose to the United States? Is he going to invade next week? I mean, can you make any sense out of that? Well, again, I think he's talking about American troops. He's making American troops slightly less safe in Iraq. That's really what we're talking about, isn't it? You know? It's so interesting how they refuse to use the word assassination. The Associated Press put out a, a long story saying, should we use assassination? Should we not? It seems utterly ridiculous to me because assassination, of course, just means a, uh, the killing, the targeted killing of a politically important person. It seems to be absolutely nailed on why you would use that. Um, Extrajudicial media, killing. But the media, yeah. An extrajudicial killing actually, without a trial. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. The media were saying that, you know, actually this perhaps wasn't an assassination because this has got very negative tones, you know. This would make the United States look bad, and so that's why we, we can't use it. It is extraordinary that, uh, that, the, uh, that the media actually won't hold Trump to account, even as they've been saying for years that Trump is a dangerous madman who could do anything and he can't be trusted with his finger on the nuclear button and he's a crazy commander-in-chief. And yet when Trump does something extremely dangerous, suddenly they really move back, move back and say, actually, this was uh, merely taking somebody out. Well, taking them out where? To a nice restaurant? No, to kill him. And one other thing that has not been reported in the corporate press, but I found out on Twitter from uh, following the Iraqi prime minister, was that um, Soleimani was in Baghdad on the uh, on the invitation of the Iraqi prime minister for peace talks with Saudi Arabia to try to de-escalate the situation in Syria and the rest of the Middle East, and that uh, the Iraqi prime minister had actually personally asked Donald Trump for permission to to allow Soleimani in the country, and that Trump had acquiesced and then used that uh, opportunity to cap him off. Mm. I think that's a really important. Uh, piece of, uh, you know, uh, background uh, knowledge on the situation. And yet that, that's just uh, not reported anywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know the veracity of things like that, but it should at least be reported if that's uh, one of the claims that's being made by a credible source. Yeah, sure. I mean, you don't get much more quotable than the prime minister of a country, right? We're always looking for official sources. We don't want to just use somebody on the street, but... If you can't quote something that the prime minister of a country has said, then you know you may as well give up. And you had a quote directly from him saying that. Oh, it's on Twitter. Yes, uh, the Grey Zone, a good alternative media mm-hmm. website, wrote a, a whole article about that, which oh will be which will be linked uh, 
uh, in that article that I wrote, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, I did see you mention that, but I didn't have time to drill down and look at the Grey Zone sources, but the Grey Zone's pretty credible. Um, well, getting back to the assassination uh, issue, uh, you're familiar with the Bethlehem Doctrine? Craig Murray wrote a good article about that a week or two ago. What's the Bethlehem Doctrine again? So, named after uh, a, a British uh, scholar, Sir Something Bethlehem. Let me pick his name up here. Daniel. Yes. Daniel Bethlehem. Daniel Bethlehem, yes. Yeah. Was a legal advisor to Netanyahu's government, and then Tony Blair grabbed him up. And he wrote a white paper uh, just after the Iraqi invasion, I think, for the uh, Blair administration where basically he made the case that it's okay to kill somebody if they are posing an imminent threat. Pre-empt- it's, a, it's an act of preemptive self-defense. But yes. uh, specifically, he says that when he says imminent, it doesn't mean imminent in the way that we would use the word imminent. It doesn't mean it's going to happen today or tomorrow or next week it means at some point in the future and it also says that it's justified even if we don't have any actual intelligence that says that there's a plot just if we believe that he might at some point in the future be a threat to our interests then we're able to take him out uh, and call it preemptive self-defense. And therefore, it's not an assassination because it was self-defense. And according to Craig Murray, this hasn't really been tested in any sort of international forum uh, since Bethlehem developed it. So the legal uh, uh, veracity of it is still unknown. But it sounds well, dodgy with, as shit to me. Yeah, I mean, the problem that should immediately jump out to anyone is that that really opens up targeted killing assassinations of pretty much anyone on the planet, isn't it? Of course it? it does. You know, you could say that, well, this person was a member of a radical political organization or, you know, this person was planning this and that or look at the websites they were looking at. And ultimately, that justifies killing anyone at any time. And of course, who is going to be able to use that? I don't think anybody would uh, accept the, for instance, if the Iranian government, God forbid, sent some sort of airstrike to Washington DC to cap off Trump and a lot of leaders, or to London to shoot Boris Johnson. I don't think anybody would say, well, you know, that's okay, because, because you know, of the Bethlehem Doctrine, uh, these people were planning attacks on Iran. So it's really going to be used by the powerful to persecute the powerless, isn't it? It reminds me of uh, the, the, do you remember the responsibilities to protect doctrine that uh, Gareth Evans uh, pushed through in the UN? It was eventually voted down, but his idea was that basically that the, the big powers, you know, the United States, Australia, uh, the EU should have the right to go into any situation to uh, any humanitarian crisis to to uh, protect civilians. So that basically meant that, uh, you know, uh, if they could uh, point to this doctrine, uh, big powers could essentially just invade smaller countries 
uh, on the pretext of uh, humanitarian intervention. And we've kind of seen that happening across the world in, in Libya, for instance, where we were supposedly intervening to stop Gaddafi killing thousands of his, uh, of his own people. Well, how's that worked out so far? I don't think the Libyan people would be uh, very pleased with the, uh, the consequences. Or in Iraq, or any a number of places. Um, Gareth Evans, by the way, that's a that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Yeah, sorry for bringing him back up. That's probably <laughs> uh, probably triggered you a bit. Well, did you know that he later, after I think after he got out of politics, that he admitted to to having an affair with uh, a member of uh, one of the opposition parties. <laughs> the leader wow. of the leader of one of the opposition parties in Australia and Gareth Evans were having an affair while they were, you know, he was probably the foreign minister at the time, I guess. <laughs> they were sleeping with each other. It's all very hilarious. I mean, I, mean, I don't know. Yes. Anywho, let's, let's not get into that. I wanted to point out the, uh, the Bethlehem Doctrine, by the way, the academic paper that Bethlehem wrote specifically says that it only applies to non-state actors. So, you know, vis-a-vis terrorists, uh, I guess, in the, the uh, common sense of the term. Um, so the problem, of course, with using the Bethlehem Doctrine in the case of Soleimani is he was very much a state actor. There is, I have read uh, one argument is, ah, but he was in Iraq at the time. And so, therefore, it may, he may you know he may fall under Bethlehem doctrine. Blah blah blah. I don't know, but it's it's all very mysterious. But it would appear on the surface of it that the Bethlehem doctrine cannot be applied to a, a general of a state uh, force like uh, Soleimani was. Yeah, and uh, as we've been discussing, even if it could apply to him it's uh, certainly dubious whether it should be applied or whether the whole thing should be just chucked out with the bathwater frankly and the fact that he came up with it for netanyahu of all people tells you everything you need to know uh, yeah and and as craig murray pointed out uh in his article well we know the quality of uh, intelligence this these are the same intelligence services that were convinced at least according to uh the bush administration and the blair government and the Australian Howard government at the time that Saddam had WMD and was going to use that imminently any day now he was going to launch an attack uh, on the West and we, we know how that turned out so going around and assassinating people on the basis of secret intelligence that can't be revealed because it would compromise national security is uh, is uh, fraught with all sorts of problems and danger before we go I wanted to talk about uh, Iran's uh, response. I've been trying to get my head around this today. So we know that after the assassination of Soleimani, Iran shot around about a dozen ICBMs and they hit, I think, two US bases in Iraq. But it came out at the time that no one was even injured. So immediately my spidey sense was like, huh? How do you hit two U.S. bases and no one even gets injured? And then stories started coming out today. Some some of the uh, generals of these bases, or colonels, somebody running these bases, saying that they were they had two hours' notice 
<laughs> read one one commander of one US base said uh, our early warning systems gave us two hours notice and we were able to get everyone out and into bunkers and that kind of thing. Well, an ICBM from Iran to Iraq would take 10 minutes tops at the speed that... The, I mean, I know Iran's ICBMs may not be the greatest in the world, but, uh, you know, they, 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 they would hit, uh, based on my quick back-of-the-envelope maths, yes. they would hit somewhere between 8 to 12 minutes. So the fact that the U.S. got two hours' notice raises a lot of questions, and none of the media... I mean, I haven't been looking at the media on this for 12 hours now, but when I was looking this morning, my time, um, I couldn't find any analysis in the media or in Reddit about what actually went on here. It looks to me like the U.S. were given a warning by Iran, either directly or via Iraq, that these are the two bases that are going to get hit and just get your people out of there, like Trump did when he hit Syria after one of the alleged uh, chemical attacks on somewhere like Gouda, which now turns out looks like was a bullshit story as well, based on some of the whistleblowers that have leaked information. Anyway, that's another story. Um, do, do you have a take on what might have happened based on your reading? Well, that's basically the same reading as I would say. I mean, you can ultimately, you could probably take a high-speed train between parts of Iraq and Iran in two <laughs> hours. And so when uh, when people talk about the intelligence having a tip-off, I don't see what other source it could have come from except the Iranian government or the <clears throat> Iranian military, which seems to me to suggest that this was a symbolic retaliation from Iran for killing Soleimani but also that they were very careful not to try to escalate the situation and give the United States uh, more of an excuse to really start a hot war in Iran. I think that really suggests that the adults in the room tend to be the ones from Iran rather than the Middle East, and that they are very carefully treading a line uh, trying to stop a war. And frankly, you know, that that's a bit... That's a bit uh, worrying, frankly. I think when uh, when the more sober ones are the uh, the Iranians. Well, I don't know about that. I don't because I, I don't have a, a generally negative perception of the Iranians. I'm as I keep telling people, I'm far more terrified of the Americans than I am of the Iranians. Uh, yes, that's what I mean. <laughs> it would be but, great if the Americans were being a bit more uh, a bit more sober than uh, than this. That's what I meant. Well, yeah, it would also be very surprising based on the last 70 years of American <laughs> geopolitical history. But here's, here was my point with all of that is none of the media coverage that I've seen, and it may be out there, but none of the media coverage I've seen so far has said, well, the Iranians obviously uh, uh, didn't want to escalate things and gave us a lot of warning and it was purely symbolic retaliation um, and, but it, it demonstrates that the Iranians uh, under the Ayatollah Khomeini are extremely reasonable and sensible because uh, they they basically yeah. gave us two hours notice to move everything out of the way before they fake bombed us. Um, that is That story's not being told yet that I've seen in any of the media coverage uh, for... <laughs> For, I would have to assume, because it, it, it makes the Iranians look like they're sensible good guys. Yeah, on the contrary, I was watching a CNN report. Uh, CNN was the first news station to be allowed into that uh, 
uh, Iraqi base or American base in Baghdad. And they specifically said that uh, Iran was not that interested in preventing civilian casualties. And they were talking about the heroism of the brave troops under fire who managed to get everybody out of the way and how terrified all the Americans were uh, during the bombing and how this might start, uh, this might uh, lead to PTSD for a lot of the troops. And I couldn't help but think, you know, if this is how American troops uh, feel after one bombing, I wonder how Iraqi civilians feel after years of bombings going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just the... I, I, we did we did talk about this on a show recently. Just the um, oh yeah, on, on about drone attacks, uh, reports of people, just, kids and civilians and adults are just living in constant PTSD um, in these countries where they hear drones flying above them twenty four seven, and they know they can strike in an instant, and they know they'll never hear it coming. So there's no re, there's no ability to to run or hide. Um, so just living with that constantly for, you know, in one form or another since 2003, uh, you've got a whole generation of kids that have been born uh, and lived their entire lives with this threat of death from the skies or from American soldiers coming in. What that must have done to an entire generation of kids in these countries is uh, unfathomable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean... I hear that uh, a lot of kids in the Middle East uh, hate sunny days now because that means that the drones could potentially strike. And on the contrary, they pray for cloudy days when there's too much cloud for the drones to actually hit civilians. And that is just really some of the saddest you know, things I've ever heard in my life, frankly. Indeed. All right, well... Alan, thanks again for coming on and uh, sharing your insights on these things with us. Um, let's hope that both the situation in Venezuela and Iran de-escalate and we don't have to talk again about these sorts of things for a long time. Yeah, every time we speak, something terrible seems to happen. Hopefully the next time we speak, it'll be on a much uh, brighter day. <laughs> what would that look like? Uh, I don't know. Maybe something great will happen. You never know. <laughs> All right, Alan. Have a great day. And uh, I'll just remind people that uh, you should follow Alan on Twitter. I think you said last time is the best place. Um, and your Twitter handle is at Alan with a single L, A-L-A-N-R, McLeod, M-A-C-L-E-O-D, of the Highlander McLeods. There can be right. only one. <laughs> it's better to, what is it, fade out than to, no, better to something than to fade away. I have something to say. It's better to burn out than to fade away. You know, for some reason, you're a Scotsman whose surname is McLeod and you're not like a huge Highlander fan. I, I, don't, I don't understand that. Yeah, I break the mold in so many ways. I'd be walking around with a huge broadsword everywhere I went if I was a Scottish McLeod. <laughs> but uh, that's the difference between you and I, I guess. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Talk to you later. Bye. You cannot die, McLeod. Accept it. <laughs> I hate you. Good. That is a perfect way to start.